Let me read verses 12 to 26 of Acts chapter 1. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Achildama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, because from John's, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas has left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, and so he was added to the eleven apostles." Well, true confessions this morning, I don't like waiting. I really hate waiting. I know that kids don't like waiting. You know, are we there yet? How much longer? We've been in the car forever. Adults don't like waiting. This is your captain. Um, Great to reform you that although we've landed, uh, looks like there's not a terminal open yet. So we're probably going to sit on the tarmac here for about a half hour. And please don't get up from your seats. According to FAA regulations, blah, 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 blah. And you just hear the groans all over the plane like, oh, and the, the angry tweets and Facebook posts are like flying out of the airplane because we hate waiting. But you know, uh, you should know that if you're going to follow Jesus Christ and be a disciple, that the Christian life involves a lot of waiting. In fact, we have a, a slogan. We, we call it waiting on the Lord. In fact, that slogan comes out of the Bible, to wait on the Lord. So this is really part of our discipleship is waiting and being patient with God's timing. Maybe you've waited on the Lord. Perhaps there's been a time in your life where you felt God calling you to something or summoning you to a task or a a ministry or some exploit for the gospel, Uh, and yet there was a delay between when He called you and when that was accomplished, and there were things in the way, and you're like, God, why are you calling me or putting this desire in my heart, and yet I can't quite get there? What what is it? And you have to wait on the Lord. Or maybe you've um, looked at some 
sin in your life or some character flaw, and, and you've been praying, God, you know, keep, grow me to be more holy in this particular area, or Lord, help me to have more patience, or help me to be more gentle or kind or loving, and you've been praying for God to work in your heart, and you've been working on that area, but, but the change is so slow in coming in our lives sometimes as we grow in holiness, and you're waiting for God to work. Or perhaps you've just been in the tough spot, and you've been asking for God to help you. God, help. This is really hard. When are you going to do something about this? I know you love me. I'm trusting in you, but could we speed it up? This is hard. This takes a long time. And so we wait on the Lord. But you know, there's a difference between waiting on the Lord and waiting in a plane that's stuck on the tarmac. You know, it's a different kind of waiting. When we're waiting for the, the plane or whatever in life, you know, we're just trying to kill time. We're just trying to make it out. But, but when you're waiting on the Lord, it's a very active kind of waiting. We're not just sitting there playing Candy Crush, checking our watch, like, please, hurry up. We're, when you're waiting on the Lord, there's things to do. God uses that time. God calls us to a very active, participatory kind of waiting. Well, here we come to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and here we see the church waiting. Uh, the book of Acts uh, has this kind of rhythm to it where it'll give us a little glimpse of the church and then they'll talk about the advance of the gospel, and there'll be sermons, and then you'll get another glimpse of the church, and then there'll be the preaching of the gospel, and the, the gospel goes forward. So you kind of keep getting these pictures of life inside the church, and then life out in the community as Jesus is being preached by the church. And so here the book starts with one of these inside looks. What was going on inside the new community of God's people as they were waiting? Because they were waiting, right, for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, for those, uh, verse 4, for those of you who were here last Sunday, you'll remember this. Jesus, before he left to go back to heaven, told them to wait. He said in verse 4, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. And so here they are now. They're in Jerusalem, and they're waiting. And as you look at the church waiting, we, we get a glimpse of what biblical waiting looks like, what the church in wait mode looks like. And I'd like to suggest that there's at least two images we get from, from these stories here in chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, of the church in wait mode, of the church trusting and, and pausing and waiting for God to work. And the first is this, that there's two panels, two scenes. The first scene is verses 12 to 14, and in that scene we see that the church waiting is a church praying, that the way the church waits is not just, ah, come on, you know, what's going on here, God? But a waiting church is a praying church. Look at verses 12 to 14 again. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. So, so Jesus just went up to heaven. They're heading back into Jerusalem. It's a Sabbath day's walk, which is a little under a mile. You know, it was the, 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 the distance you could legally travel on the Sabbath and still not break the commandment of doing no work on the Sabbath. It's, you know, the rabbis had it all figured out. Well, anyway, they, they arrive, they go to a place in the upper room, then you get the list of apostles, and then you have, uh, oh, and also Mary, the mother of Jesus is there, Jesus' mother Mary, and then uh, Jesus' brothers. So after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had children. These are, their children are there, these brothers are praying too. So there's this gathering of people. And by, by the way, just a little aside, um, you know, this is very classic Luke. Luke loves details. Luke was a researcher. 
He was into the nitty-gritty details. That's just how, and we'll see more of this in the book of Acts. And, and I bring that up, not just as a curiosity, but I think it's important because sometimes when we, we approach the Bible, we have doubts. We say, how do I know this thing is real? How do I know this book is true? This just seems like fantasies and, and myths and fairy tales. Is this really historically accurate? And one of the remarkable things about the Bible is just how historically accurate it, in fact, is. You know, whether, whether you look at archaeology or whether you look at ancient history, you know, again and again, the Bible shows that it was rooted in, the, in a real ancient time and place. I mean, part of the reason that, the, that we have modern archaeology today, in part, is fueled by the Bible and people researching into it. And the book of Acts is no exception to that. Luke is very into places and names and descriptions. And so here's Luke, the, the kind of fastidious researcher. Okay, who, who was there when you all came back? Oh, okay, you were there, you were there. And who? Oh, Mary was there. Okay, we're going to write this down. You know, he's that kind of a mind. Uh, anyway, I digress. The important thing is what they were all doing while they were together waiting. They were praying. Verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer. This was their wait mode, was a mode of praying. They gathered together and they prayed. The, the Greek phrase is, is something more like they devoted themselves to prayer together. They devoted themselves to prayer together. Does that sound familiar to anyone? They devoted themselves to prayer if you were here two weeks ago, that should be familiar. Remember we studied that in Colossians chapter 4? Where in Colossians chapter 4, Paul said to the Colossians, devote yourselves to prayer. It's actually the, the same two Greek words, devote yourselves to prayer. To pr- and and it's, here it is. They, they were doing what Paul said. They weren't just praying. They were devoted to prayer. They didn't just say a prayer. They were devoted to prayer. In other words, it had a kind of recurring, habitual, regular thing. It it marked what they did. Oh, there they go again praying. Well, that's what they do over there. Oh, okay. They're devoted to prayer. Um, uh, I have a a guy here in our church. Many of you know Dave Como. He's one of our interns. Uh, He is a student at Gordon-Conwell Seminary right now. And he was telling me about the the devotion of some of the students at Gordon-Conwell to prayer. They have a lot of Korean students up at Gordon-Conwell. I don't know if you know anything about the history of the Korean church, but in the modern era, the Korean church has exploded in Korea. I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of believers, massive churches there in South Korea. And, And one of the characteristics of the church in Korea is it is a praying church like crazy. Those people know how to pray. And so Dave was telling me, he says, you know, these Korean students of Gordon-Conwell, they get up at five every day to pray. And I was like, what? Five? Wow, that's really early. Um, they have five to pray. And he says, it's very common to walk around campus and see clumps of Korean students praying. They're just praying for each other, caring for each other, being the body of Christ to each other. But there are people, they're, they're praying. It's built into their uh, into their faith and in their cultural context. But that's not just for Koreans. This is a Christian behavior to be devoted to prayer. And when we're waiting, that's what we do. We pray. That, that's how we wait. Unfortunately, there's other things we substitute for prayer, right, when we're waiting. <laughs> there's other things we do instead of praying while we're waiting. Uh, for instance, uh, we worry, right? Instead of praying, we worry. We stress out. We freak out. We panic. 
our minds go, you know, and I get it, I worry too. Uh, but, but just to be clear, let's make sure we're all on the same page here. When you're worrying, okay, just so we're all clear, that doesn't count as praying, okay? You don't get points for that, all right? If you're up from two to four in the morning worrying yourself, silly, you can't get up the next day and tell someone you prayed for two hours. Right? It doesn't count. Worrying is not praying. Worrying is when your thoughts just go crazy and you listen to your thoughts. Praying is when you're talking and directing your thoughts to God, and you're talking to God about your worries. I mean, I'm not saying that worries can just magically disappear, but we pray, and we say, God, I'm worried about this. That's what prayer is. It's an active, intentional conversation with God about about the fears and the anxieties and the things that we have in our hearts, and so we pray about it. It's easy to think that worrying is the same thing as praying. Well, look, I'm worrying, and I know God hears my thoughts, so doesn't that count? No, you need to pray. Something else we substitute for praying sometimes is, is working. We, we get busy. No, oh, I've got a problem. I'm going to fix it. You know, I know you. I know myself. We're a bunch of can-do, type A, roll-up-the-sleeve, self-reliant New Englanders. That's how we are. And if there's a problem, it's like, well, let's just get to it. Let's make a plan. Let's make some calls. Let's check the Internet. Let's do a Google search. There we go. There's an article on how to fix it right there. Uh, you know, and I'm going to talk to some people, and I'm going to make it, and I'm going to start executing, and I'm just going to get her done. Um, but we don't pray. Now, I'm not suggesting, just to be clear, I'm not suggesting a kind of passivity where we never do anything and we sit on our couch and just say, well, I prayed, so now God's going to have to do it all. I mean, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that kind of error either. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that in our normal activities and our activism, is there, is there an emphasis on depending on God in prayer? In other words, for every hour I'm at work getting her done, is there an, is there an hour spent praying? Probably not. Okay, is there a half hour spent praying for every hour of getting her done? Hmm. Is there 10 minutes of you know? When's the last time I prayed for five minutes straight? When's the last time you sat down for five minutes and just for uninterrupted prayed about some things for five minutes? Are we a praying people? And yet praying is a very, I would argue, a very gospel-shaped behavior. You know, we're people who love the gospel here. If you're new to our church, you're going to hear us talk about the gospel a lot. We're going to sing about the gospel a lot. We're kind of obsessed with the gospel here. It's because the gospel is the best news we've ever heard, and it's still blowing our minds. So we keep talking about the gospel. But the gospel is not only the message that helps a person be saved, but the gospel is it's like how we keep living our life. We never really get over it. So, so the gospel message, you guys, if you don't know the gospel message, this is the gospel. It's the news that we are sinners, that we're under God's judgment, we're going to hell, but God in his mercy has sent a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and he rose again, and now sinful people like me, by putting their faith in Jesus, can be forgiven and be, and be reconciled to God. Not by my good works, not by trying to be a good person. It doesn't matter at all that I went to seminary or I'm a pastor. That doesn't have anything to do with my salvation. It's God's grace, his forgiveness in Jesus. And so we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus. That's how you're saved and forgiven. But I think sometimes we, we remember that message. Well, that's how you become a Christian. But we think, well, now that I'm a Christian, yeah, I know I was saved by faith, but now I'm going to get there by works. 
You've got to keep trusting God. Grace, every day I need grace. And so I, I think prayer is one of the most basic postures of faith. Because when I'm praying, I'm saying, I can't do this. I need help. Yeah, it's me again, God. Is it okay? If, you're okay? Okay, fine. This is my need again today. Here I am, Lord, at your feet today, asking for grace. Grace to follow you. Grace to obey you. Grace to get through this tough thing that's going to happen today. Grace to not sin. Grace to be an evangelist, to engage with the gospel. Lord, I need you today. So, so it's a very gospel-shaped way to live, and, and Christians pray. That's what Christians do. They pray. They're devoted to prayer. And so I find this passage just very challenging. I, I look at my life, and I say, am I a praying person? Yeah, I am a praying person. Am I devoted to prayer? Hmm. I would like to be more devoted to prayer. But let me just point one other thing out here before we move on to the second scene. It's not just that they prayed and devoted to prayer, but there's another key word here. They prayed together. They prayed together. They, they were a group of Christians praying together. It is a very normal, basic thing for Christians not just to pray, but to pray as a community and as a body together in the same place, out loud, praying to hear each other. Now, I know that may sound different. You know, some of us here were raised in a different kind of sort of religious setting, and uh, some of us were kind of taught either explicitly or implicitly by our parents that your faith should be a very private thing. Anyone kind of pick up that message growing up? Faith's private. And, and you maybe even never heard anyone pray out loud besides the priest or the pastor. Uh, and, but no one in your family ever prayed out loud. You, you never seen anyone do it. No one taught you how to do it. And, and I guess I would just say to you, it's time to grow. You need to grow. And you need to grow in praying out loud with other Christians. That's basic Christian behavior. Christians get together, and you know, it's a little weird at, weird at first. You're like, oh, am I saying this right? Look, there's no right or wrong. It's just talking to God. No one's sitting there going, uh-oh. You know, mm, you know, just pray. Pray. Lift your thoughts and your heart up to the Lord. Basic Christian behavior is to gather together in groups and pray. And again, I fear that that is something we're slow to do as Christians. Um, you know, when we meet together as Christians, there are certain things we know how to do. Like we know how to study the Bible together. That's good. I'm really glad about that. And as Christians, we know how to get things done. We know how to plan things. We know how to form a committee meeting and be like, okay. Let's see, what, what are the dates? Okay, you're going to be in charge of the hamburger buns. Okay, and you're going to make sure the, the bulletin announcement gets it. Okay, and you've got a plan. It all gets worked out. Okay, we, we've organized. We know how to organize ourselves. A lot of us here are type A, organized people. It's great. It's a blessing. But where's the prayer? And, and we know how to share our opinions as a group. We know how to get together as Christians and say what's on our mind. But do we know how to pray? Uh, so often church meetings go like this. Have you ever been to church meetings like this? Church meeting starts, and uh, someone says, so the chairman says, Hey, uh, Fred, will you open us in prayer, Fred? Fred's good at praying. And Fred, he rolls out a really awesome prayer, you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And then when Fred's done, there's like a two-hour meeting, and lots of things are discussed and planned and worked out, and all the details are put in place. And then at the end of the meeting, they're like, well, look, the time's wrapping up here. Wilma, will you, uh, will you close us in prayer, Wilma? 
And Wilma, she's good at praying too. And Wilma, she rolls out a nice prayer. And, and then uh, we're done, you know. And it's good, you know. And you got things done and God blesses it. And, but where's the prayer? Where is, where is that team saying, God, we need you. We need you, Lord. We need to be dependent upon him. Well, what if it's your next committee meeting, even if you have the, just a mundane committee in the church, well, what if you said, hey, look, on the agenda, next committee meeting, we're going to pray for 15 minutes. And, and when I say pray for 15 minutes, I don't mean talk about prayer requests for 13 and pray for two. I mean like pray. <laughs> You're going to pray together. Would people freak out? Would they be like, 15 minutes? How much time we have? I've got to get home. My show's on, you know, at nine. I'm like, what? How long is this meeting going to go? Why are we praying? Why don't we just get, get her done? Come on, wasting time here, right? What, what if your Bible study said, hey, once, once a month in our Bible study, our growth group gets together, instead of studying Acts and talking about it, we're not going to talk about anything at all. We're just going to pray the whole time. And we're going to pray for people who know the Lord, and we're going to pray for each other, and we're going to get after this prayer thing. We'll try that once a month. Do this Christian prayer thing. I know we're not all comfortable praying, but we're gonna, by the end of the year, we're all going to be good at praying together. Because we're going to get used to it. You know, as a pastor, I go to a lot of meetings in church. I go to a lot of meetings in church. <laughs> and I like them. I really enjoy it. It's a great way to work with people, and it's fun. And, uh, but, you know, my favorite meeting, my favorite meeting of the go-to in the church, besides Sunday morning gatherings, has to be the monthly elder prayer meeting. I love that meeting. I really love going to that meeting. Uh, our elders meet twice a month, and one meeting is the business meeting, and they pray there too. They, you know, 15, 20 minutes we pray about things, but we've got a lot of business to do too. But at the, at the prayer meeting, we meet in someone's home, and all we do is spend an hour plus just praying for each other, praying for the members of the church, praying for God's work in our church, praying for revival, praying for you. We're just praying. And I just come out of those prayer meetings like, you know, like my feet are six inches off the floor. I'm like, wow. That was so good. Sometimes I, I wonder, I wonder if we got more done there in that hour of praying than our three hours of discussing and debating in our business meeting. I wonder if the Lord is doing things as we call upon him. And so this is the kind of church they were. More prayer, more power. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. We need God's power not our know-how. And so, this is the church in wait mode. It's not just sitting around twiddling its thumbs, wondering, well, when's this Holy Spirit going to come? How long is this going to take? This is the church waiting. It's an active, prayerful waiting. But the other thing we see, let's move on to the second scene here, verses 15 to 26. We have another scene of this, these early days before the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost in chapter 2. And, and here we see that not only is the waiting church a praying church, but you see, the other thing this church was, it was a church that was studying and trusting and obeying God's Word. That's another aspect of the church in wait mode. It's studying, trusting, and obeying God's Word. It's a, it's a church that's digging into the Scriptures and understanding itself through the Scriptures and obeying what God's Word, what the Bible has to say. That's the normal wait mode of the church is to be, think about it this way, talking to God in prayer and listening to God from His Word and letting that guide and direct and help us interpret our circumstances. 
Um, so, here, so look at this, the second story. So here Peter stands up, verse 15. About 120 believers there together, give or take. Again, there's Luke. 100, how many? 100, 120, okay. Um, he's writing down numbers. And, and so here's Peter standing up among this early group. And, and there's a problem in the early church. What's the problem? They're down one apostle. They only got 11. Should have 12. Jesus appointed 12. Then there was the whole Judas debacle, you know, the Judas gate that's been rocking the headlines. Judas betrayed Jesus, and then Judas committed suicide, and then uh, he made a big splash in the headlines. Uh, His intestines spilled out, and it's really gross. And in fact, it's so well known that they even name the, the field where he died the field of blood. Can you imagine being the real estate agent who's got to sell that? Why is it called the field of blood? Uh, It's a mistranslation. I don't know why they call it that. So this real, it's a debacle. It's it's this publicly known thing where one of Jesus' 12 guys uh, betrays him and then commits suicide. And it's it's just really hard and it's really um, unsettling. And so it might have been a tempting moment for the church to panic or to go into fix-it mode, and how are we going to get the right spin on this? Let's form a committee. How about a PR committee to try to get our... No, 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 no. Peter says, don't worry about that. He goes, guys, this was all part of God's plan. God's in control. Jesus, it's not like Jesus just made a mistake when he called Judas. This was all part of God's plan. And he says in verse 16, brothers, the Scripture hey, I've been studying the Bible. And and I've noticed, we we figured out the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. This happened because of the Scripture. That's why. And And then he gives the Scripture down in verse 20. Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms. May his place be deserted. Let there be no one there to dwell in it. So just real quick, that verse that Peter quotes is from Psalm 69. And if you go back and look at Psalm 69, I won't take the time to go through it here, but it's really interesting. Psalm 69 is a a psalm of lament from King David, where King David is crying out to God in the Old Testament, help me, God, help me. All these enemies are pounding on me. Everyone's against me. And David did have a lot of enemies. But it's also part of that psalm. David prays for God's justice and judgment on his enemies. So it's a cry for help by King David for his enemies and a prayer of judgment on his enemies. Well, that psalm eventually comes to be seen not just as a psalm of David or a psalm of Israel, but a psalm of the Messiah himself. It's a messianic psalm. If you go back and read the psalm, you'll find there's, there's bits of Psalm 69 fulfilled in the life of Jesus, like uh, you know, zeal for your house will consume me when Jesus clears the temple. Or later on, uh, the, the enemies are attacking him and no one's standing with him and they give him vinegar to drink, just like Jesus on the cross. So, so it's all this stuff that points forward to Jesus. He's the old, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the suffering king in Psalm 69. But Psalm 69 also talks about what happens to the enemies of the king. And if Jesus is the ultimate suffering servant, well, Judas is kind of this archetypal enemy. And what happens to him? Well, may his place be deserted. That's where the quote comes from. And so so here's these apostles going, look, guys, look, this terrible thing with Judas, that that just wasn't a snafu. This was all part of what was going to happen to the Messiah because we've been studying the Bible, and it all makes sense. And then he quotes another psalm, 
Look at verse 20. May another take his place of leadership. It's the same thing. It's a, a, a kingly psalm of lament where David is crying out for help and his enemies come under judgment. And this is another one of the judgments upon the king's enemies. May another take his place of leadership. So in light of this, Peter puts it all together and he says, look, verse 21, it's necessary to choose someone else to take his place. There's got to be someone. We've got to obey the Scripture. We've got to follow through with what God has been doing, and we need to put someone else in Judas's place. There needs to be 12 apostles. Jesus assigned 12 apostles. Why is the number 12 so important? 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Covenant. In the New Israel, in the New Covenant, 12 apostles. If you were going to be part of God's people in the Old Covenant, you descended from the 12 tribes. To be a part of the new Israel, the new covenant, well, you have to believe the teaching of the 12 apostles, which is that Jesus was raised. And so, so we've got to have 12 apostles. This, this is what Jesus set up here. And, and the Bible says we need to make a replacement. And, and what does it take to be an apostle? Do we have, some people ask, do we have apostles today? No, we don't have apostles today. Because to be an apostle, you have to, verses 21 to 22, you have to have been with Jesus, seen everything he did on earth, and, and then be a witness of his resurrection. And I know some of us here are elderly, but no one was there then. None of us are that elderly. No one here could be an apostle. They had a, a, an initial job of laying the foundation of the witness of having seen it all, and they wrote down their witness for us in the Bible, the apostolic teaching. So what do they do? Well, they got two guys, Joseph and Matthias, and then verse 24, they pray, and then love verse 26, they cast lots, which is interesting. Like, what do they do? Do they flip a coin? Was it like, you know, heads, Matthias, tails, Barsabbas? Did they, you know, throw some stones, you know, put their names on it and toss them out of it? I mean, I don't know how they did it, but, but this was a practice in the Old Testament. Of course, it raises the interesting question, should we cast lots today in the church? can't help but wonder that. Uh, you know, see, what should I go with today? The red dress or the blue dress? All right, here we go. You know, Jesus, guide me. Boom, you know, roll the dice. Is it like that? Like, like you just make decisions by casting lots? It sure would make some decisions easier, wouldn't it? Um, you know, then it might tempt you to get weighted dice and all that stuff. But anyway, I, I don't think we're supposed to cast lots today. I tend not to think so. Here's why. I think that, number one, this situation was so unique that it wasn't simply some kind of decision-making situation, but they were asking God to appoint an apostle. I mean, this is a rare founding of the church kind of thing. And secondly, it seems that the casting lots was still kind of Old Testament mode. The Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out yet. After the Holy Spirit's poured out, you don't really see a lot of this. It's kind of what they did in the Old Testament to make choices and decisions and to make assignments. So, so I tend to think that we're not supposed to cast lots today in, in making decisions like that. Um, but either way, it seems that this was a unique story, right? It's a unique story because they're appointing an apostle, and we don't do that today. It's a unique story because they're casting lots, and I'm not suggesting we do that today. But I do think there is something here that's normative for us that we see as a pattern and that we're going to see continually throughout Acts, and that is that one of the characteristics of the church is that they study and obey God's Word. And they're interpreting their circumstances through God's Word. And they're believing in the sovereignty of God. 
that God is in charge of all these things. Look, if you're going to study your Bible, one of the things you're going to find in your Bible is the sovereignty of God everywhere. God is the Lord. And so they're approaching this waiting time by studying Scripture and doing what it says. And so I think this is what the church looks like when it's waiting, among other things. It's praying, it's talking to God, it's seeking God's help, and it's also letting itself be guided and directed by God's Word. As it tries to know what it should do, what God's will is, they keep going back to the Scriptures. And even though this, again, is a unique situation in some ways, I think this is the normative approach of the church. Is say, what does God's Word say? This is how we know God's will is from His Word. I know we as Christians struggle with knowing God's will sometimes. Have, you know, that's one of the things we often do when we're waiting, trying to figure out what God's will is. What does God want me to do? This job or that job? Should I buy the house or should I not buy the house? Should I buy the boat or not? What size boat should I get? You know, uh, this college or that college? Should I do the surgery or should I wait? Lord, what's your will? Tell me your will in this situation. And, and we say, well, look in the Bible. You go, there's a place in the Bible that tells me which car to buy? No, but maybe God's will is focused on another area than we're typically focused I think sometimes we're, we're focused on our circumstances and decisions we have to make, but God's Word guides our, our overall values and our thinking, and, and maybe God's more concerned about our hearts and our motivations and our minds as opposed to the circumstances. It's kind of like, should I take this job or that job? And I don't know, I, I can almost hear God being like, I don't care, but look, check your heart, check your mind, check your motives, and you know, these are the important things. That's what the Bible speaks to. Hey, do you guys want to know God's will for your life? Anyone here interested? I can tell you God's will for your life. I found a Bible verse that tells you God's will for your life. Let me show it to you. It's really cool. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to tell you this morning God's will for your life. How cool is that? That was worth the price of admission right there. Look at page 1170, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is God's will for your life. Ready? Like, oh, I'm finally going to know whether I should do this or that. Oh, here, here's God's will for your life. 1 Thessalonians 4. Ready? Verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That's what God wants. Like, sanctified, what does that mean? Holy, godly. God wants you to, to grow in in holiness and to mature, to become more and more like Jesus, to have more and more of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He wants your character and our character to be more like Jesus. That's God's will. You're like, that doesn't help me to know which, you know, which motorcycle I should go with and whether or not I should have the motorcycle. Like, maybe that's not the focus of Christianity and God's will. Maybe the focus is what's in your heart. Why are you doing this? And is, are you growing more holy? And of course, the focus here in verse 3 is, is on, uh, in particular, sexual purity. He says that each of you should avoid sexual immorality, that you should learn to control your body in a way that is holy and honorable. But, but you know, we, we could give all kinds of sins and, and righteousness that we should be fleeing from and aspiring to. But it's God's will that we be holy and sanctified. 
And again, I think so many times we're focused on our circumstances and knowing God's will and, and which way we should go. But, but God is more focused on our hearts and the character of Christ. And our circumstances are merely the tools He's using to shape and hone us into the image of Christ. You know, when we stand before Jesus someday, His question to us isn't going to be, so which career did you choose? Did you get the right one? He's going to say, do I know you or do I not know you? I don't think I know you. You don't look anything like me. I don't know you. Or I do know you. Look, this is my image that that I've put into you through my salvation. And look, you've grown more like me as evidence that you're one of mine. This is one of mine, Father. I know him. I know her. That's what God is concerned about. I mean, again, this is gospel stuff. Gospel people are concerned to be growing in the image of Jesus. Why did Jesus die on the cross? He didn't die on the cross so that we would get into the better or the right college. He didn't die on the cross so that we would make the right decision about whether or not to break up with so-and-so. He died on the cross to forgive our sins and make us holy. And so as gospel people... Our big concern in all of the vicissitudes of life is, am I growing and are we growing to be more like Christ in obedience to the Word of God? That's what a gospel church looks like. What's a waiting church? It's a church that is praying, that is devoted to prayer, that is devoted to prayer together, and it's a church that is seeking to know God and to conform to His image as it seeks to obey His Word, trust His Word, interpret its circumstances through His Word, a church that devotes itself to the apostles' teaching. That's a waiting church. I'll tell you what, when the church is like that, when you're like that as an individual Christian, when you are praying and when you are submitted to God's Word, that's the church that God can use. That's the Christian that God typically uses. He can use anyone he wants, anytime he wants, but that's what he tends to do, is he tends to use that people. Because when the church is praying and and studying and obeying God's Word, it's like, you know what the church is like then? It's like a pot of water that's at a low boil. Like, that's the pot you're going to throw the pasta in. You know, you got another pot over here, it's not boiling, you're not going to throw pasta in that. You're like, oh, that one's already boiling, okay. And so the, the waiting church that's boiling... It's ready for the pasta. Sorry for the food analogy near noon. The, the waiting church is the church that has its bags packed, its shoes tied, its a wallet, its passport, and it's got, you, you know, everything's together, all the papers are there, the backpack's ready, and that's the church that's ready so that when the call comes, it's ready to go. The church that, that is praying and the church that is obeying God's word is the church that has its armor on. It has its helmet on and the breastplate and the shield and the sword and, the, and everything's ready and, and it's, in a, it's in a proper fight stance and it's ready for action, it's balanced, it's ready to move when it's time to move in the spiritual war. That's the church. And those are the people who are ready because they're waiting on God and they're talking to God and they're studying His Word. It is that church that is ready in chapter 2 to be clothed with power from on high. 
That is the church that is ready to receive the Holy Spirit so that it might bear witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray, make us like this church. God, I pray that you would make us a people devoted to prayer. We pray, Lord, that you would crank up the, the prayer intentionality at South Shore Baptist Church. In each of our lives, Lord, would you put a, I pray you put a desire in our hearts to pray, that we wouldn't try to pray more because we know we're supposed to, but that, Lord, there would be a hungering in us to draw close to you as a church. Oh, Lord, put a spirit of prayer within us. And help us to grow in prayer. God, I pray that you would help us to love your word and obey your word and keep studying it. And and not just learn the facts and and the information in the Bible, but even more importantly, live it and let it guide our lives and make us more holy and sanctify us, Lord. Oh God, we pray that we would be that ready church. And then, Lord, we pray that you would clothe us from on high with power so that we might be your witnesses, that we might engage the South Shore with the good news of Christ and beyond. Oh, Lord, work here. Send your reviving spirit among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.